The menace of racist vigilante violence received a dramatic boost by the U.S. court system with the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse on all charges. We'll discuss how protesters took to the streets in outraged response to the verdict, the victory of pro-revolution candidates in the Venezuelan election, the latest January 6th attack court developments, demonstrations worldwide against U.S. intervention in Ethiopia, resistance to the coup in Sudan, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. If you enjoy the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash The Socialist Program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ibarum and Walter Smolarik. Our usual host, Brian Becker, is out today. Esther Ibarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. So, Walter and Esther, I want to start our show today with this Rittenhouse acquittal. This is huge news all across the world, all across the country. There were protests after this 17 year old who opened fire and killed two people injured another and you know generally was spraying ar-15 rounds into a crowd of peaceful protesters in kenosha wisconsin this past summer there were protests all over the country protesters took over the brooklyn bridge you know people are not sitting down for this verdict it's incredibly upsetting it really says a lot I think one of the worst headlines that we've seen so far is this headline from the New York Times. It was front page, the very front page of the New York Times and the Sunday edition, the edition that most people get if they get the New York Times. Rittenhouse case highlights the nation's deep division over gun rights. And then the subhead. As groups debate the effect of the verdict, the legislative stalemate shows no signs of changing and weapons on the street grow. It's just this this hand-wringing, both sides-ism. I mean, there's zero analysis in this article. There's zero fight back about this. It's so obvious to the rest of us that this is a huge miscarriage of justice. And the New York Times is writing about this as if, well, gosh, I mean, this is really, you know, showing that there's a debate out there, you know, gosh, I just, you know, wish we could get gun control, like as if that's the issue here. Even Saturday headlines. So that's the day after Rittenhouse was acquitted where Kyle Rittenhouse was found not guilty of intentional homicide and four other charges, purely informational. And then when it comes to self-defense, the prosecution has a heavier burden. These are the headlines that the New York Times is writing about. This is the quote unquote paper of record. And it's, you know, has nothing to do with what really happened was this huge miscarriage of justice. It's, oh gosh, well, the legal system, you know, tisk tisk. let's make sure we tweak the legal code, but oh gosh, we can't because the country is divided on gun laws. That's absolutely false. No, Sandra Bland was taken into custody for what? Not signaling a lane change? Brianna Taylor was killed by police for what? Being in her house? Marissa Alexander was given 20 years in prison for what? Actually defending herself against her abusive husband who attacked and threatened to kill her. And she didn't even shoot at him. She shot a warning shot away from him. No, the point of the Rittenhouse ruling on Friday was to let everyone know, if you're protesting against racism, if you're protesting against the white supremacist militias and the fascist groups out here, if you're in the streets, if you're in the struggle with your fellow people, your fellow workers, you can be shot with no consequences. The judge who let Rittenhouse unhandcuffed come up to watch evidence with him, who let Rittenhouse pick the names out of the metaphorical hat of who the jurors would be, who had the entire courtroom applaud one of the defense witnesses testifying that Rittenhouse was innocent, who threw out the charge that Rittenhouse was a minor carrying a weapon and an assault rifle at that, despite the very clear fact that Rittenhouse was undeniably 17 and was undeniably carrying a weapon. The judge, Bruce Schroeder, wanted to send a message that this is okay. 
that the murder victims of Rittenhouse, who weren't allowed to be called victims, but instead, you know, calling them rioters or arsonists was fine. He wanted to send a message that the murder victims were bad people who needed to be shot at, that the police wanted to and did work with right-wing armed vigilantes. More and more evidence shows the police and the judge and the system worked together to show anti-racist protesters, you are the enemy, you can be shot, and to show the white supremacist vigilantes, you can hunt and kill protesters with impunity. It is open season. So when the New York Times comes out here to say, oh gosh, what a mess, the legal system really gets us into this mess. What a mess the country is being so divided by gun laws. It's just hand-wringing. And it's designed to keep people at home, which is playing precisely into this narrative. There's nothing we can do. We just need to keep reading the paper and make sure to vote, you know, once every four years. Walter, Liberation News put out an incredible statement really breaking this whole thing down that I want to read some of. Approaching the parking lot of a car source dealership at 11.48 p.m., Rittenhouse ran past Joseph Rosenbaum and dropped a fire extinguisher that he was carrying. Rittenhouse raised his rifle to point at Joshua Zeminski, who was vandalizing cars in the parking lot, but posed no threat to Rittenhouse. Someone in the crowd then yelled, gun, gun, gun. Rosenbaum, who was unarmed, ran toward Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse ran several steps from Rosenbaum, turned and shot Rosenbaum in the hip. Rosenbaum fell to the ground, incapacitated. Rittenhouse shot Rosenbaum three more times as he lay on the ground. And then a shot to the back kills him. A group of people followed Rittenhouse, believing he could kill again. At 11.49 p.m., that's one minute later, Rittenhouse trips and falls on the street. An unknown individual attempts to kick Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse fires at this individual and misses. Anthony Huber bravely jumps into the fray to attempt to wrest the rifle away from Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse fires at point-blank range and shoots Huber in the heart, killing him. Gage Grosskrauts approached Rittenhouse with a handgun drawn for self-defense, a perfectly reasonable action considering that Rittenhouse had just murdered someone literally one minute prior. The handgun is pointed away from Rittenhouse, and it's only after Rittenhouse shoots Grosskrauts in the bicep that Grosskrauts' arm droops and points at Rittenhouse. Grosskrauts flees to seek medical attention. Rittenhouse picks himself up and runs toward a police line with his hands raised. Bystanders yell, quote, that's the shooter. This dude shot someone, unquote, as Rittenhouse walks toward the armored police cars. The police allow the armed teenager to pass through their lines without arresting him or even questioning him. Walter, I mean, in what world is this self-defense? It's really amazing. And it says everything about the U.S. court system that this was considered to be Nothing wrong that the judge uh, was able to engineer a trial and the jury delivered the verdict that Rittenhouse did nothing wrong. So this is completely absurd because of the facts that you laid out there, Nicole, and and just the circumstances too. I mean, think about the circumstances of this. So Kyle Rittenhouse went to Kenosha. He doesn't live in Kenosha. He doesn't even live in the state of Wisconsin. He lives in Illinois. He went there to join a militia, a far-right racist vigilante group that was gathering outside of a business called CarSource. The owners of CarSource did not request protection. They didn't want anybody to come and prowl around their stores with weapons. They just went there because they wanted to wage war on their political opponents, because they wanted to go out and terrorize and intimidate and perhaps shoot and kill, as happened in this case, people who are protesting against racism, people who in this case were protesting against the police shooting of Jacob Blake. This is a tremendously dangerous development because there are thousands and thousands of people who have the same type of vile fascistic ideology as Kyle Rittenhouse and the same propensity towards murderous violence. And now the court system in the United States is basically saying uh, you can do that with impunity. So I think this is a huge deal. I mean, anybody who's minimizing the effect of this verdict, I think, is, is making a grave, grave error, because this is understood for what it is by the racist, white supremacist far right in the United States. They're declaring open season on progressive protesters, especially people who are protesting against police brutality, against black people. 
So the trial was an absolute sham. You know, there were just tons of these subtle psychological signals sent by the judge to the juror that Kyle Rittenhouse was just, you know, a good kid who ended up in a bad situation, which was exactly the type of racist narrative that the defense was pushing and and was picked up by the corporate media. So there's what you mentioned, Nicole, in terms of the drawing the names of the jurors out of the hat. There was an infamous photo that surfaced of Rittenhouse hovering just like a couple feet behind the judge as they reviewed video evidence together. I mean, this is a guy who who's on trial for two murders and attempting a third murder, and he's unhandcuffed, just hovering just a couple feet behind the judge. Then the judge orders the entire courthouse to applaud for a so-called use of force expert brought in by the defense to argue that Rittenhouse, you know, acted purely in self-defense. The judge forces the whole courtroom to applaud this guy ostensibly because it was Veterans Day and this guy was a veteran. And then the judge at the very beginning of the trial, as Nicole said, you know, banned the use of the term victim, but arsonist, looter, you know, vandal, whatever, rioter, that's that's all fine. So it was rigged from the very beginning. It was rigged from the very beginning. And don't forget, he at the very end, he throws out the one charge that was a slam dunk, mm-hmm. right? That he yes. was uh, underage, carrying a gun across state lines. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the judge overrules the state legislature of Wisconsin to let this guy off on the most obvious thing that he did, right? I mean, you're you are 17 and you have a gun and you can't be a minor and have a gun. Like there's no disputing that. But the judge said, okay, well, because of some inconsistencies in how the legal language of the statute was drafted, the whole law is invalidated. And Kyle, you're good. You don't even have to worry about that charge. I mean, completely disgusting on on every level. So I want to pick up on something that Nicole said and also that you said, Walter, and the jury saw the video of Rittenhouse being pursued by the crowd. And it was easy to get the impression that he was being pursued and so that he was in danger and that he had a right to declare self-defense. But the judge did not allow other type of video evidence. And I think that you have some of the audio that he would not allow. Yeah, Esther, there's, I had pulled two clips. One of them, it's someone who sounds exactly like Kyle Rittenhouse. He's there watching people leave CVS, holding merchandise, presumably participating in the looting of the store. This is from August 18th. And you hear this guy who sounds exactly like Kyle Rittenhouse say he wishes he had his AR to effing shoot them. This was reported in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Again, this was like August 18th, 2021. So this wasn't allowed in the courtroom. This wasn't allowed to be seen or heard. So I'm going to play that first. It's just a couple seconds. And then I'm going to play a little bit just so people can hear Kyle Rittenhouse's voice. I'm going to play just a couple more seconds of Kyle Rittenhouse's voice from testimony. So again, this is the audio clip that was reported in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It looks like one of them has a weapon. I wish I had my phone. I'd start shooting rounds at them. He says AR. Listen to that Midwestern and that, you know, really nasal voice. And then here is him with his testimony. I knew that it, it could shoot and I believe from a distance. I don't know how far. I'm not an expert on AR-15s. I mean, it's indistinguishable to me. And like you're saying, Esther, that wasn't allowed in the courtroom. Like, not whatsoever. But, you know, the judge went further I'm going to read again. I really encourage people to look at Liberation News and read this PSL statement that came out. It's really an incredibly written piece. So this is from that article, quote, one of the most dramatic and disgusting moments of the trial came when Rittenhouse himself took the stand. Widely mocked as being an obviously staged performance, Rittenhouse broke down in quote unquote tears as he recounted and defended his murderous actions that night. The judge lent credibility to this ridiculous spectacle by calling a recess to allow Rittenhouse to compose himself. Well, were there actual tears? (laughs) I thought it was like a crying with no tears. (laughs) I I think that's what gave it away to a lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. So, by the way, also, the defense attorney for Rittenhouse, Mark Richards, has said that they tested Rittenhouse's testimony in front of mock juries. This was tested. This emotional, like, tearless, crying, like, More of a rehearsal, right? that he had, exactly, was tested. You know, 
telling the jury how terrified he was, crying, sobbing, you know, the fit he threw. It was all tested before the defense tried it out in court. And richer, well-funded defendants have these trials before trials with fake paid for juries slash focus groups, really, that are paid to be completely objective and honest, as opposed to the millions of people behind bars who were told not even to go to trial, right, who had such a, a huge uh, looming sentence over the over their heads. They went ahead and took a plea, whether they were guilty or not. There is nothing left to chance for the well-funded. Rittenhouse's personal testimony was a game changer and these various focus groups noted this was a game changer. So this really shows like his personal, you know, quote unquote breakdown on the stand was totally rehearsed, very obviously rehearsed. I mean, you know, this just is an, yet another piece of, of just how, you know, divided this justice system is or quote unquote justice system. You know, one of the things that I didn't hear much in corporate media was just the idea that the Second Amendment, you know, held up by the right is a real danger to the First Amendment that you have people out protesting racial injustice, police murders, and that is our right. And it's a very as we go on, we can see that's a very important right that is now being threatened by the Second Amendment. So which is more important, the First Amendment to be able to go out peacefully protest or the right to carry weapons and these weapons of war, really, that should not even be on our streets. And don't forget that last week, after last week's show, I sent you all a picture of a man patrolling outside the courthouse where Rittenhouse was on trial with an AR-15. So <laughs> the whole world just must look at the United States as an insane place where people can walk around with AR-15 rifles, weapons of war, and when it causes this kind of murder and chaos and mayhem, you know, there's still people standing up for the right for this type of weaponry and this type of violence to happen like this, and justify it. Yeah, Esther, I mean, I agree. It must look completely absurd to observers. I mean, the type of just like wanton violence that's allowed to be perpetrated by, you know, vigilantes against people exercising their basic constitutional rights to protest. But, you know, of course, like when you look at U.S. history, this is this is so par for the course, right? I mean, the mobilization at points of of acute crisis, right? And and the uprising against racism last summer was certainly a moment of like acute crisis for the system. They're able to mobilize these far right racist, white supremacist, paramilitary groups to use, uh, but through methods of terrorism, repress any type of progressive movement for change. You know, of course, that goes all the way back to Reconstruction, the creation of the Ku Klux Klan to roll back Reconstruction. The Klan was, was revived again around the turn of the century. The 60s and 70s, you know, you had the proliferation of all these fascist, neo-fascist organizations to again beat back the rising tides of people's movements, especially the movement against racism. In the 90s, right, I mean, and this was especially pronounced in, in the upper Midwest and in, in Wisconsin, Michigan, places like that. You know, in the 90s, the quote-unquote militia movement emerged, promoting all sorts of far-right conspiracy theories. That culminated with the Oklahoma City bombing, one of the worst terrorist attacks ever on U.S. soil in, in 1995. And now, you know, it's the same trend re-emerging and being given, as it has in all of its previous iterations, total impunity by the capitalist state. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that both of you all are making. But I actually don't even know if it's really about the Second Amendment, to be honest, because when you look at, for example, the way Marissa Alexander, as I mentioned earlier, was treated, right? She she had a right to self-defense. She actually, when you think about it, you know, the rest of us know she had a right to self-defense. It's about the way these laws are very flagrantly used in various ways to repress some people and allow others to get away with whatever they want to get away with. Oh, um, Nicole, that's, that's <laughs> gun rights for white people. <laughs> You didn't know? I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. Uh, no, ex exactly. And I'm sure that struck so many people all over the country this whole time, this whole week, this whole trial, you know, just the differences. A lot of the, the ways we've been talking about the judge treating Rittenhouse 
the ways that has never happened in any courtroom that the rest of us have been in. That's never happened. You know, no like black teenager on trial has ever gotten the kind of treatment the Rittenhouse got. No, you know, progressive protester has ever gotten the treatment that Rittenhouse got. You know, he's actually presumed innocent, despite the fact that there's all of this video footage showing what happened. Like, you know, all these advantages that were built in for his lawyers that we talked about, the favorable media coverage that kept, you know, like the New York Times article that's just like, no, no, it's, gosh, what a pity. It's not pointing out the realities of what really happened. Well, you know, just remember what happened to so many protesters and even journalists like yourself who were out on June 1st here in D.C. and how the Trump administration brought the what I call the military. You know, they said it was, uh, you know, some type of other force or whatever, prison guards or whatever. But it was a militarized force that attacked you all and injured many people. Look at what happened in Portland last year where these anonymous federal troops came out and attacked protesters. I remember one man was shot in the head with what they called a non-lethal round, but mm-hmm. he was severely injured. Yeah. There was a group of protesters who came out during the uprising against racism on the West Coast last year, and they were confronted by this same type of vigilante element. And in the skirmish, one of these vigilante was shot. And what did the Trump administration do? They sent like a death squad basically out to kill this man. I know you remember the case. So this is part of the same reaction that we've seen since people took to the streets by the millions, tens of millions last year to stand up against being murdered by the police. You know, these murders by the police. So I think you guys already touched on this one. But I mean, the component that I just can't stop thinking about is that you know, this 17 year old, this minor had an assault rifle, which is not legal for someone to have. And yet black teenagers get pulled over every minute in the city of Washington, DC and all over the country for having a broken tail light, for not having updated registration, for not signaling a lane change. Like I cannot imagine. I mean, the charge of having a weapon when you're not supposed to, if you include, you know, other, that broad category, It's the most, one of the, you know, most frequently charged charges in many jurisdictions across the country. And yet this guy, he not only has the weapon, but he kills people with it and they won't even charge him with that. Yeah, exactly. And I think you mentioned last week that there are people in jail right now doing time for having an illegal weapon. Right. There are. There absolutely are. And, you know, when we, when we think about all of the people in the street, I mean, The way the New York Times, I just want to go back to this headline, Rittenhouse case highlights the nation's deep division over gun rights. Just such a, such an insane hand-wringing, you know, limp headline. You know, when you read a headline like that, you think, well, gosh, I guess, I guess I'll just stay home. I don't know what else to do. I can't go and persuade all of these, you know, right-wing people who think that their guns are their very, you know, most important right. So I guess I'll just stay home. I mean, that's the message that I think we're supposed to get, but people were out in the streets this weekend. They were out in the streets and Walter, there's reason to be out in the streets. We know there's reason to be out the streets because when you fight, you win. And there's actually another really important update and a really exciting story with the family of Elijah McLean fighting and winning $15 million in a settlement. Yeah, yeah. So this is an important development. Uh, Elijah McLean murdered by Aurora police officers in, in 2019. His case, you know, rose to national prominence as a, a consequence of the uprising last summer. You know, we, we've interviewed on this show before some of the protest leaders in the Denver Aurora area who were ridiculously framed on many, many, many false felony charges facing decades in prison because of their leadership in the struggle for justice for Elijah McClain. And now not only have all of those charges against the protest leaders been dropped, not only have the police officers and medics who are responsible from Elijah McLean's death, been indicted. Also, the government has felt compelled to settle a civil lawsuit in the wrongful death of Elijah McLean for for $15 million. You know, of course, that doesn't 
replace the the people responsible going to prison. You know, there's still going to be a struggle to make sure that that happens. But yeah, I mean, it's just another indication that, you know, even though the government does everything it can, everything it can to give impunity to killer cops, just like it does everything it can to give impunity to killer racist vigilantes like Kyle Rittenhouse, it is still possible to struggle and win. And I think that this is, you know, one more sign of the uh, fruitfulness of that of that type of struggle. It's not a clear line. It's not always victory after victory after victory, but does happen. And while all of this was going on, while this trial of Kyle Rittenhouse was going on, this, you know, kangaroo court, this sham of a trial, Walter Christian Hall, a 19 year old, was killed by Pennsylvania State Police. Who was Christian Hall? Yeah, Christian Hall was a 19-year-old man who was having a mental health episode. He was confronted by Pennsylvania state troopers, many Pennsylvania state troopers on a bridge, and he was and he was shot to death. He was shot to death like so many people suffering from mental health crises, like so many people of color. Uh, Christian Hall is an Asian man living in an almost exclusively white part of Pennsylvania. He was killed rather than being given the medical attention that he needed. Now, the cops lied, as they almost always do in these cases. They said that Christian Hall was pointing a gun at them, that he had a gun in his hand, and that they felt threatened. Now, it turned out to be just a realistic-looking pellet gun. But even still, new video evidence has just emerged that had been concealed up until this point showing that Christian's arms were in the air, not pointing the pellet gun at the cops, not waving it around. His hands were in the air when he was shot down by the Pennsylvania state troopers. The authorities in Pennsylvania, judicial authorities, have refused to press charges so far, but the family and activists working with the family are now hoping that the emergence of this new evidence will finally push state authorities to press charges against the cops who murdered Christian Hall. And I just want to add, I mean, this wasn't a man standing there with his hands in the air, yelling or threatening or speaking to even to the police. He was on an overpass and the call that came in about him called a possible suicider. He was on an overpass, possibly about to commit suicide. Like this was a man in true crisis. Well, following up that case, Walter, you know, all these things are tied together for me as I'm sitting here listening to both of you, because in Kansas City, you know, a case that did not get as much attention on Friday was this Kansas City cop, Eric DeValconaire, being convicted in the 2019 shooting death of Cameron Lamb. And in this case, the cops also concealed evidence and lied. So Lamb was shot and killed while backing into his garage on December 3rd, 2019. The judge delivering the verdict cited the fact that the Vulcanier was not shooting in self-defense, that police planted evidence to make it seem as though Cameron had a gun when he did not. And important, this case is one cited by the civil rights organizations there petitioning the U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to investigate the entire Kansas City Police Department. And in their Friday story covering this, NBC said that in the past year, prosecutors have brought criminal charges against five white Kansas City police officers for allegedly using excessive force against black people. And DeValconier was the only officer charged in an on-duty killing. And that makes me wondering, okay, so the other officers were charged in like off-duty killing. So like they're off-duty and they're out like killing people. So while there's this focus on this case in Kenosha and the verdict on Friday, um, these murders by police are still ongoing. Of all the cases we've discussed on the show, a conviction like the one in Kansas for Cameron Lamb is still the exception. And, you know, whether it's factored into the decision of the jury in the Kenosha case or not, the trial in Kenosha was just highly politicized. You know, as you said, Rittenhouse was held up as a hero by the right and far right. I don't know if we mentioned the couple, Mark and Patricia McCloskey, those people who brandished the guns at the peaceful protesters in St. Louis, they showed up in support of Rittenhouse. And the issues of guns, the issues of self-defense, 
you know, importantly, like I said, how the second amendment is being used to squash the first amendment, you know, is the issue and it's being politicized. You know that Representative Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina and Matt Gates of Florida have already offered Rittenhouse internships in Congress. And Paul Garsar, you know, who was censored by the House last week, said that he might have to arm wrestle Gates to see who could hire Rittenhouse first. You know, this is a person who just recklessly killed, you know, two men. And so in the same, you know, partisan atmosphere, we want to bring out what's happening here in D.C., Congress did manage to pass the Build Back Better legislation, which we know provides universal pre-K, subsidized child care, expanded financial aid for college, four weeks of paid family leave and medical leave, and help to combat the climate catastrophe and provide relief to longtime undocumented workers in this country. And it needed all Democrats on board to pass, and it received that after House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy spoke for eight hours until 5 a.m. Friday to delay the vote and delay a vote to really, what was he delaying a vote on to provide these kinds of benefits for people? So, you know, I don't understand the political calculus of all that. Maybe you can explain it, Walter. So these benefits are very popular among all Americans, but this is a pivotal moment we're in right now. I just wanted to kind of bring these two things together where, you know, two days before these same Republicans voted against, you know, censoring Gosar, you know, who hinted at offering this killer an internship, you know, <laughs> then they oppose relief for American families, you know, and many of these same people, as we've mentioned, are coming out, you know, standing up for Kyle Rittenhouse but they could not stand up for voting rights this session and stand up for these needed for benefits for American families. Meanwhile, they're gerrymandering all around the country so they can dilute the vote of black communities, people of color, working class communities, and take back the house. So we don't know what's in store. So they, Democrats who are savvy, you know, AOC did uh, an interview with the New York Times on Sunday, basically saying that, if they don't get this passed, you know, they have very little chance of holding on to their majorities in Congress. So these things are all tied together. And we're just seeing this emerging strength of this kind of fascist movement that, you know, we have to fight against. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, because the right wing was aggressive, because the far right was so aggressive, they were able to define this bill before the Democrats were. You know, it's a, a combination of the far right being very aggressive and and the Democratic Party leadership being so passive and and weak and hesitant and divided on even the policies. Yeah, right, right, and and completely unwilling to actually confront this you know small number of senators who are holding. I mean, two right, Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin, along with you know a handful of people in the House of Representatives who are you know, holding tens of millions of working people hostage who would benefit from a lot of these programs because they weren't defining the bill themselves, right? They couldn't even decide what to call it until like a month or two ago. The Republicans, and especially the far right wing of the Republican Party, has been able to brand it, oh, this is socialism, this is communism, this is a government takeover of everything in your life. I mean, they they actually never talk about any of the specific measures, with maybe the exception of one or two kind of distorted climate provisions, because those measures are popular, right? Like, it's popular that you should be able to take time off from work when you have a kid and not lose your income. It's it's popular that, you know, if you're a working class parent struggling to put food on the table, you know, you should get a check from the government to help feed your kids. Or, you know, your kids should be able to go to community college for free or without incurring any debt. Uh, or that you should be able to afford childcare or send your kid to pre-K for free. Like all of those things are totally popular, but because the bill became not actually about those programs because it was messaged so weakly by the people who are, you know, ostensibly the champions of it, the Democratic Party leadership. It's just become, you know, another one of those, like, all the Republicans on one side, all of the Democrats on the other side type of thing, which gives these, you know, quote unquote centrists, right, these anti-worker extremists like Manchin and Cinema all all the leverage. It absolutely does. And you know, there was a, yet another example of right wing extremism on display last week when, you know, the the face for for many people, I think, of the January 6th 
fascist attack on Congress, QAnon shaman was sentenced last week. It was last Wednesday. And, you know, his real name is Jacob Chansley. He's very much, like I said, I think the face of this for many people. But of course, he is one of the only people, a lot of the foot soldiers like him are some of the only people who have been charged. The lieutenants, the colonels, the generals, the commander in chief, Donald Trump, who stood up there and said, I'll be with you. We have to fight. None of them have been charged, Esther. Right. Well, they haven't been charged yet. And we promise everybody we're going to do a deep dive into January 6th. Right. But the interesting thing, I guess, on a local level that's come out of this this particular conviction of Jacob Chansley is the fact that he received pretty like kid glove treatment compared to a lot of prisoners here in the D.C. jails. You know, he even I think he was removed from there, you know, and uh, put some place where he could get organic food. During his stay, the U.S. Marshals, at the urging of Republican legislators, this is another example of the, the right and the far right really kind of seizing the day and like having their way here in D.C. So at the urging of these lawmakers who went into the jails and said, these conditions are horrible. You are holding our people, holding these people under terrible conditions. And this is before they've even been charged or before they haven't had their day in court. and so the U.S. Marshals go and inspect the D.C. jails and decide they agree. These are terrible conditions and we're going to have to move some of these people. So lots of these January 6th protesters have been moved out of the D.C. jails. And meanwhile, years of protest about the horrible conditions in the D.C. jails have only been heard now that the January 6th protesters or rioters have been sent there. So it's just brought up all kinds of issues here with D.C.-based protesters who are around the issues of policing and criminal justice here. And so Chansley, I think he received the minimum sentence in any case. He has, like many of those coming before the judges here, he uh, you know, basically apologized and said that, you know, he was sorry and he blamed Trump for, you know, basically, I guess, influencing them all to come here like he was some type of Svengali, you know, able to, you know, you know, hypnotize people to come here. But in any case, he received the the minimum sentence that he could get 41 months in prison and he received credit for time served. And that's it. But I wanted to say, though, we can't we can't forget that some of those higher ups are being brought in to the process. So Steve Bannon, he was indicted by a grand jury because he refused to come to talk to Congress about what he knew and how he was involved. We know that he was at the so-called command center that day at the Willard Hotel, along with other folks. And so the legal process is moving on. But. What they're hoping for, they're trying to run out the clock. They're trying to hope that they can keep appealing or doing whatever they're going to do so that Congress changes over, the January 6th commission is defunct, <laughs> and and that they can even appeal to the Supreme Court about this whole issue of executive privilege or whatever. So Exactly. I mean, you know, it's it's like the there are so regularly like black working class people in DC and I'm sure a million other places who get indicted within a week or two weeks. And the, you know, there's the major news outlets have produced, you know, incredible analyses, huge investigations. The New York Times put out a 40 minute video breaking down exactly what happened when. It's been months and there's been a commission. And even before there was a commission, there's evidence. And even before, you know, Chansley was prosecuted. There is time. There has been time. There has been resources available. And the fact that nobody, you know, on the higher level, it's only been the foot soldiers. No one on the higher level has actually been dealt with, has been, you know, even charged is, is just absolutely disgusting. And like you're saying, Esther, it is like, clearly, clearly there is a game plan here. And clearly it is to let people, you know, get away scot-free. This was, as you said, the lowest possible sentence the judge could have given him under the sentencing guidelines. And I just want to read because I think this ties actually really ties into the defense that Kyle Rittenhouse used when he 
practiced his sob story that he used to get acquitted in front of the jury, Jacob Chansley said, quote, in court, men of honor admit when they're wrong, not just publicly, but to themselves. And so I would like to use this as an opportunity to admit to your honor, to the prosecution, to the nation, to the world. I was wrong for entering the Capitol. I may be guilty of this crime, but I am in no way, shape or form a dangerous criminal. I'm not a violent man. I'm not an insurrectionist. I'm certainly not a domestic terrorist. I am a good man who broke the law, unquote. Chansley also told the judge he's, quote, nothing like these criminals, unquote, who he is incarcerated with. I mean, this guy, you know, really tells this judge this whole this whole story, this whole sob story. And and the judge says, well, you know what you did here was actually obstruct the functioning of the whole government. It's such a serious crime. So he, you know, he does say with his words, this was serious. And then he gives him the minimum sentence. It's just really disgusting and appalling. Let's pivot to some international issues. There's been a bunch going on all over the world while the country has been watching the Rittenhouse trial and the Ahmed Arbery trial and Jacob Chansley gets sentenced. There's been a, a lot going on around the world and I'm going to play a clip of of Eugene Perrier. He's the host of Breakthrough News, and he was in New York on Sunday at a protest for the Ethiopian people, for Ethiopian Americans, for Ethiopians who are all around the world in the diaspora who have escaped, who have fled from the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front that terrorized the country for almost 30 years when they were in power and were very recently in the last three or four years voted out of office. And now Abiy Ahmed leads the country. Abiy Ahmed, of course, who won the Nobel Peace Prize for garnering and creating a peace agreement between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And there were protests worldwide on Sunday, this just two days ago, because the U.S. is now really intervening and supporting the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, which you know, a terrorist group. It's a terrorist group. It's actually a terrorist group. You know, their time in Ethiopia was when they were in power was was terroristic. They terrorized people. They killed people. And they are now on the march headed toward Addis Ababa to try to take the capital again. And and it's not reported in corporate media that they, they always talk about this conflict, but they don't talk about that the TPLF started the conflict by attacking the country. I mean, attacking the military barracks of the country, seizing weapons, killing soldiers. And, you know, it just it's just a conflict. You know how they just start talking about, oh, a person died. It's like this <laughs> passive right. voice, you know, and. And they never talk about the fact that this group is considered a terrorist group by the country they're in. Exactly. So I'm going to play a clip of Eugene Perrier, who was speaking there on Sunday. All of them have turned these pernicious lies about what's happening into Ethiopia into yet another regime change operation. And we've seen what happened in Libya the country destroyed and divided. We've seen what's happened in Syria, the country destroyed and divided. We've seen what's happened in Yemen, what's happened in Iraq, the country's destroyed and divided. We've seen how Iran, Cuba, Venezuela have been blockaded, choked, starved to death. This is what they want to do to the nations of the Horn of Africa. Why? Why? What is the crime of Ethiopia? The crime is to seek unity. Yeah. in the Horn of Africa and to seek unity on the African continent. Yes. Yes. U.S. policy has actually been very consistent for the last 40 years when it comes to the Horn of Africa. Keep them divided. And they've supported various people at various times. They've had various positions, but they all boil down to one thing. Keep them divided. Walter, People in Ethiopia are terrified, and rightfully so, as this terrorist group marches through Ethiopia. There are refugee camps. There are people, you know, whose houses have been completely captured by the TPLF. And people are, you know, I, I was at one of the rallies on Sunday at the White House and talked to many people who talked about this, who said, my family back in Ethiopia, their houses have been taken over by the TPLF. They don't have a, a way to get food. The TPLF is stealing and ransacking stores, is taking all the available resources. I mean, this is a disgusting conflict. And, and I shouldn't even use that word because as Esther said, it's not a conflict. It's a terrorist group terrorizing 
a region. That's what's happening. It's an attack. Yeah, well, and just to expand a little bit more on on that history that, of course, is not part of the corporate media narrative about what's going on in Ethiopia and Eritrea. You know, in the the 1970s, Ethiopia had a socialist revolution. They overthrew the monarchy that had ruled the country, and they created a socialist country that was an ally of the Soviet Union and Cuba. But Ethiopia was a multinational, multi-ethnic country and is a multinational, multi-ethnic country. And so what the United States and allied powers did was support different separatist groups that were in opposition to the central socialist government of Ethiopia on the basis of opposition to the country of Ethiopia, right? You know, they would want to have, for instance, there was a... um, a successful Eritrean independence secessionist movement. And there were similar opposition groups based in the different ethnicities, nationalities of Ethiopia, too. Many of them did espouse socialist ideology or other left-wing ideas nominally, uh, because left-wing ideas just sort of had hegemony in the country at the time. But the function in the eyes of the United States of groups like the TPLF, right, which was one of these, you know, secessionist opposition groups, the function of groups like the TPLF was that they are in opposition to the socialist revolution of Ethiopia. So that's where the TPLF-United States alliance came from, from the struggle to overthrow the socialist government of Ethiopia. And then even though Tigrayans account for about 6% of the population of Ethiopia, after the counter-revolution succeeded in the 1990s, the TPLF was the dominant political force. There was this broader alliance called the Ethiopian People's Democratic Revolutionary Front, but the TPLF was the dominant player within it. And so not only did they control the heights of the state, they also controlled vastly disproportionately the top leadership of the military as well. And so they were uniquely positioned to launch an insurrection like they did over a year ago and try to regain that power that they lost after Abiy Ahmed, the current leader of Ethiopia, came to power and tried to to heal some of those divisions, including the division between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And I think this is definitely one of the things that Eugene Perrier was alluding to in that clip that you played. Uh, Abiy Ahmed actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2019 for making peace with Eritrea. The two countries were arch enemies prior to this, but you know, a new dawn in their relations emerged because of the because of the initiative of the leader of Ethiopia. And so that's something that is threatening, certainly, to the United States, which wants to keep any major, you know, potentially major regional power weak and divided, and set the stage for the TPLF insurrection very shortly thereafter, which is bitterly opposed to the government of Eritrea and, in fact, has been also waging war on on the country of Eritrea as well. The Answer Coalition and the Horn of Africa Hub, the two groups that worked on these protests, the Horn of Africa Hub is a new network. Um, you can find them on all the social media accounts. And this is a, clearly an important an important issue. As the U.S. has left Afghanistan, they're now intervening in yet another place. And it's incredibly important that all progressives, all people who are against war, stand up for this and, and fight back against the U.S. intervening in what, what is clearly a democratic election. This was an election that happened, and Abiy Ahmed is the leader. Right here in D.C., we have the largest population of Ethiopians in this country, but also the largest population of Ethiopians outside of Ethiopia. And those of us who live near Silver Spring, Maryland, we know that's to be true. Like, you know, I live in little Ethiopia, basically. So, you know, we care about this not only as socialists, but also as as neighbors to our people we live right here with. And, you know, it just dawns on me that just like the United States, you know, they are not passing voting rights here, right? They're not respecting voting rights here. So it's obvious that in another country, they're not supporting the legitimately elected leader and government of Ethiopia either. You know, that these phrases and all these speeches about democracy and all that, it's it's bull. And similarly, we know that the Maduro government is prevailing and has been 
Yeah, so this is this is a big, big win for the forces supporting the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela, the, the pro-government forces, primarily the PESUV, United Socialist Party of Venezuela. So not all of the results are out yet, but we do know that the PESUV candidates, the pro-government, pro-revolution candidates, swept the elections for governors. 20 of the 23 states of Venezuela elected pro-government, pro-revolution governors. That certainly bodes well for the mayoral and local legislative elections as well. And, And these were particularly important elections because for the first time in years, the bulk of the opposition was participating in it. Essentially, all of the opposition participated in the elections, as opposed to boycotting the elections. There have been many, many, many elections since the Bolivarian Revolution began in Venezuela with the 1998 election of Hugo Chavez. The pro-revolution forces win almost all of them. The few times that they've lost, they've immediately accepted that. But the opposition essentially frustrated by democracy, frustrated by elections, has adopted a strategy of violence that culminated in the Guaido coup attempt, where they picked this unknown Venezuelan far-right politician, had him declare himself the president, and then U.S. imperialism went around the world trying to get other countries to sign on to this ridiculous facade. And so that was rejected by the Venezuelan people, was rejected by the Venezuelan armed forces. And so the right-wing opposition was essentially forced, because they had no other option, all of their other strategies failed to return to the ballot box where they were given a resounding defeat by the people of Venezuela. Yeah. And I I just want to pick up on Esther, a theme you were drawing out, because when you hear about those election results, Walter, you know, it just proves it proves so clearly the point that so many of us made during that coup attempt that the U.S., you know, tried to force Juan Guaido on the Venezuelan people. You know, it has so many similarities to the U.S. government, you know, funding and supporting the TPLF, this terrorist group that no one in Ethiopia supports that even, by the way, a lot of Tigrayans don't support. I just think it's so important to drive that home because it's not, you know, it's so important for all of us to be internationalists, to stand with, you know, the Venezuelan people who are fighting the U.S. that, you know, doesn't want real democracy, that, It's so important to stand with the Ethiopian people who are fighting the U.S. who doesn't want democracy. And Esther, like you said, the U.S. doesn't want democracy here either. And if we don't stand up for Ethiopians and we don't stand up for Venezuelans, you know, they're not going to stand up for us. And if we don't stand up for ourselves and fight, you know, on the side of getting rid of U.S. imperialism, of building a different system, like Asada Shakur said, right? It's I don't know her exact quote, but essentially we're all tied in this together. We have to stand up for each other. And, and to and to tell the truth and to continue to tell the truth, because, you know, there are shows like this, there are a few other outlets that really kind of draw the connections because it's not just Ethiopia, it's not just Venezuela, you know, Nicaragua and Nicaragua. Daniel Ortega was just returned to power, but they want to call him a dictator. They want to say that the elections weren't legitimate. We had people on the ground there, election observers, who know that the elections were legitimate. And they don't want to talk about the U.S. funding the opposition candidates. They want to say, oh, these people were jailed, whatever. But no, these were, this is like them doing the same thing, funding the former plutocrats, the former dictators of the country to try to return them to power, right? Or, you know, they want to say they want to say Cuba is a dictatorship. It's a whatever. But the people are supporting their government, you know. So we we see the same pattern all over the world. And yes, we have to have international solidarity with all uh, people around the world struggling against U.S. imperialism. And really, we have the same struggle here at home, too, you know, and just look at what we're talking about today and just look at what they're doing in terms of not even supporting voting rights here at home. Yet they want to talk about voting rights, uh, democracy. It's ridiculous. And they're not even jailing people like Kyle Rittenhouse, who shot dead two people who were protesting. Yeah, but they're jailing line three protesters and the young woman who did the civil disobedience against the pipeline. She's in jail for what, eight years now? Exactly. I mean, she didn't kill anyone. You know, she's trying to save the environment so that we all can live. And she's doing eight years, but 
Kyle Rittenhouse is, you know, a free person getting job offers. Right. Maybe working with Matt Gates. Who knows? No, I think that's such an important point. Walter, we've got, you know, one more, I think, really important international update. What's going on in Sudan? Sudan's prime minister has actually now returned after being ousted in the military coup. But what happened there? I think it's more nuanced than that sounds. Yeah, that's right. So it's a complicated situation. So Abdullah Hamdak was the prime minister of Sudan who was overthrown in a coup at the end of October. Hamdak was in office because of a power-sharing agreement that was reached by elements of the opposition and elements of the military after the longtime president of the country, Omar al-Bashir, was overthrown in 2019. It's always been a very uneasy alliance. There's always been a lot of completely justified mistrust that the military of Sudan was ever sincere in its promise to eventually hand over full power to the civilian half of the government. But nonetheless, Hamdak was in office for a while, overthrown at the end of October, and now reinstated as the result of another agreement with the military. Essentially, he will return to his post as prime minister, you know, according to this deal, But there will be a new government that he leads, a new cabinet that he leads that will be, you know, quote unquote, technocrats, essentially people who are approved by the military is the pretty clear subtext there. So a big section of the protest movement that overthrew Omar al-Bashir, who waged what's known as the December Revolution because it began in December 2018. The December Revolution forces are opposed to this deal, and they're opposed to any deal with the military because the army is clearly lying. They clearly have no intention of actually handing over power. The military is responsible for terrible atrocities against protesters. Uh, Just in the last month or so since that coup, Dozens of protesters have been killed, including several children. And prior to that, I mean, the the army killed hundreds of protesters taking part in the December Revolution. So the opposition is against any type of deal making, even if it sees Abdullah Hamdak restored maybe in name only to the prime minister's office. So they're vowing to keep fighting. The country has been paralyzed by a general strike for the last month. They're saying that they're going to continue, the the pro-revolution forces, they're saying they're going to continue that strike. They're going to continue building barricades in popular neighborhoods. There'll be mass demonstrations, civil disobedience. So we'll see. I mean, the army is hoping that this concession, having this sort of fig leaf Hamdak government will be enough to pacify people. But there are others who want to deepen the revolution and fully uproot the power of the army. Absolutely. And we'll we'll keep continuing back to this story because it's so incredibly important. And so many people in Sudan are in the streets about this and have been, you know, opposing this horrendous military coup. Walter, you are the editor of Liberation News. You can find Liberation News at liberationnews.org. Walter, what are the three stories that you think people should take a look at this week? Yeah, well, I definitely want to recommend that everybody check out an article titled Historic Victory for India's Farmers, Modi Government Concedes, Struggle Continues. This is another thing that we've been covering from time to time on the show. Enormous, enormous demonstrations, like tens of millions of people participating in general strikes, enormous, have been taking place across India for over a year in opposition to pro-corporate agricultural laws that the far-right government of Prime Minister Modi has been pushing. That movement won. That heroic movement that endured so much violence and repression won the repeal of those laws after such a long and heroic struggle. So you can check out the details by reading that article, Historic Victory for India's Farmers. I also want to encourage everybody to check out an article titled Rodney Reed Denied New Trial Despite Overwhelming Evidence of His Innocence. This is about the struggle to free Rodney Reed from Texas death row. His case is absolutely infuriating. The the miscarriage of justice here is so apparent, so apparent to everybody. And yet the state of Texas is still determined to execute him. And so you can read up on this struggle against the racist death penalty. Rodney Reed denied new trial despite overwhelming evidence of innocence. And finally, we have a report 
from the picket lines in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Teachers there were on strike for almost three weeks, almost three weeks demanding a contract after having worked without one since 2017. The title is Our Power Comes From Our Unity on the Picket Line with Scranton PA Teachers. So check out liberationnews.org. You'll see the button at the top to sign up for our weekly newsletter and get all of our latest updates sent to your inbox. It's really incredible the breadth of stories that y'all are able to cover, you know, talking about these small, well, not really small, but poorly covered stories like the strike in Scranton, Pennsylvania, you know, all the way to India with this massive historic victory from a massive historic struggle and movement. So I I really do encourage people to go check out liberationnews.org and to sign up for the newsletter. That's all for today. We'll have our regular show with Richard Wolf tomorrow. And then on Thursday, on Thanksgiving, we'll be releasing a very important interview about the real story of Thanksgiving, about the creation myth um, that is, you know, what we were taught in school about how the, the founding fathers were so great. We'll talk about what really happened on Thanksgiving. So look forward to that. And then next week, we'll have Brian Becker, our usual host, back. So thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.